On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Pretty varied uh, series of front pages this morning. Uh, we'll start with the Sunday Times. Huge shortage of teachers due to housing crisis uh, is the headline there. Schools face a desperate scramble for teachers with 264 positions still open in the capital weeks before the new term begins. Uh, the housing shortage and the cost of living crisis are being cited as the main reasons for the shortage. Uh, this weekend, principals said they did not expect to fill many roles before September. One said she would have to use unqualified teachers for three special needs posts. Only thing I'll say about that, I'm not quibbling with the reporting. There is no such thing as an unqualified teacher. If you're not qualified, you're not a teacher. Uh, and my, uh, my wife, who works in teacher education, would, would, would have me make that point uh, that if you're not qualified, you are in fact uh, not a teacher. Uh, last Friday, 264 Dublin teaching positions were unfilled on educationposts.ie, which is the recruitment website for all open positions in primary, post-primary, higher and further education. Of these, 134 were mainstream class teaching positions, 71 were for special education teachers and 25 uh, were for special class teachers. Uh, the remaining 34 were for language support, supply teachers and general support teachers. What generally tends to happen in those instances is that if schools aren't able to fulfil their full staffing complement, what tends to happen is that the people that they have already hired to work in special classes or to work as special needs assistants generally tend to get repurposed, whether it's right or not, uh, to work in uh, mainstream class roles uh, to fill the gaps whenever they are available, which basically means uh, that those who are in the most need of educational supports are the ones who tend to lose out uh, as a result of that. Um, there are two RTE-themed front pages. Yes, I, I was away for a couple of weeks and the RTE is still on the front pages of the papers. The Mail on Sunday tells us uh, that ministers have called on the new RTE chief, Kevin Backhurst, to make a decision to back or sack Ryan Tuberty sooner rather than later as a cash-trapped station loses €1 million Euro a week in unpaid licence fees. Senior government sources this weekend expressed disquiet over the pace of the Director-General's response to the existential crisis facing the national broadcaster. Uh, the Mail on Sunday last week revealed how dull committee heads were sharply criticised uh, sharply criticised Mr Backhurst after he told them that Orty wouldn't meet their deadlines for further information relating to the whole saga. Well, if there was a call to Kevin Backhurst on the front of one page, uh, front of one paper rather, uh, Kevin Backhurst himself is on the front of another because he has spoken to the Sunday Independent where he says that Orty and Ryan Tuberty are at a make or break stage in negotiations to return the presenter to the airwaves. Both sides will this week re-enter discussions which have been described as Kevin Backhurst as being at a delicate stage. They are aimed at returning Tuberty to his weekly radio programme. Kevin Backhurst told the Sindo that there's been no discussions about the termination of Tuberty's contract and that the talks are fully, solely focused on him getting back to his 9am show on Radio 1. There is an urgency now to resolving this matter and I hope that we can do so in the coming week or so. Uh, in RTE, there is apparently growing expectation that agreement will be reached for Tuberty's return. He has let it be known publicly that he wants to get back to work at the station, which he has described as his home. Uh, and finally for now, the business post. Um, you'd know it was only two months away because we've gone full, full budget uh, on the front page of the business post. The finance minister, Michael McGrath, has strongly rebuked the Taoiseach and other ministers, warning them not to raise expectations ahead of October's budget. Uh, speaking to the business post, Michael McGrath has hit back at comments this week by Leo Varadkar, who has raised the prospect of potential mortgage interest relief for people who are struggling with their repayments due to rising interest rates. He says that he's not going to raise expectations in the weeks leading up to the budget about what can be achieved and then end up disappointing people. Hmm. Uh, this also comes as Michael McGrath reveals that he will extend the bank levy 
in Budget 2024 as he resists calls for Ireland to implement a controversial windfall tax on banks in a similar matter to that announced by George Maloney, the Italian Prime Minister, uh, last week. Ahead of his first budget as Finance Minister, it's actually mad to think that he's been involved in writing up budgets for six or seven years now, but this is his first budget as the Minister for Finance. Uh, he is known to have been irked by Fine Gael's attempts uh, to determine tax policy in recent months, and he has sought to assert his authority. Budget 2024 will deliver an overall package of $10.4 billion and will be presented to the Dole on the 10th of October 2023. Set your calendars now, everyone, because uh, that is on the way. Uh, to discuss those stories and more, we are joined by Joan Mulvihill, who is Digitalisation Lead at Siemens, and by John Cunningham, Relationship Director with Morgan McKinley and the Chairman and Country Director for the Lysis Group. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, before we get to any of the stories that are on the front pages, um, I'd, we'd, we'd done our usual Sunday morning prep of picking out some stories that we thought might be worthy of, of having a chat about. And the one thing that both of you were keen to pick out that wasn't originally on our list is some discussions about the the state of the capital city and particularly about crime uh, on the streets of Dublin, uh, about which there are a few bits and pieces dotted around the papers this morning. Uh, Joan, good morning to you. What, what in particular jumped out at you from today's papers about crime in the capital? Well, I think it's less much what's in the papers today, but rather what isn't, because it's been such a big story over the last couple of weeks and with increasing number of instances on the street. Now, full declaration, Gavin, I live in Mullingar and I've just experienced Flakil Naharan and hordes of people there, well managed by the Gardaí for the last week. But I do think we have an issue with the city in general. And um, as John and I were discussing it, we're faced with two challenges. Number one, what needs to be done immediately to bring some kind of a law and order back to the streets in terms of Gardaí presence or what needs to be done there. But then secondly, addressing some of the underlying issues about how the city functions and what's causing these problems. So what's the short term uh, solution as you see it? Well, John and I disagreed on this. Okay, I, I right. personally I personally feel at this, uh, in 2023, we're at a time now where we may need to deal with arming guards properly. We have talked a lot about increasing the number of guards. John's head is spinning. Okay, well, but, John, but I, John will have a stake in a moment. I lived in Paris for a month last summer and I've lived in other European cities and guards are, police are armed. And I think we've always stayed away from it because we feel like it's an unwelcoming presence on the street. It appears, it puts tourists off. It appears more mm. threatening. But I think well, tourists are very experienced now. Were, we're used to seeing people, g- g- police well, I, in other cities being armed. I would, I would nearly say tourists are unaccustomed to seeing unarmed members exactly. of police forces. So I don't see any issue with us arming our police in the absence of being able to recruit enough guards immediately. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to speak for John and his idea on that. But I, I think that's actually a real issue. But I think what's happened is we have created a vacuum in the city. And having lived in other European cities where people are living very much in their city centres, we don't have Mm. that anymore. We've got loads of derelict buildings, you know, or underutilised residential space above shops and commercial premises in the city. And we've created a vacuum and a Mm. cauldron almost, which has attracted crime. And it becomes like shooting fish in a barrel, attacking tourists in places like Temple. I I do actually think that there is, you're onto something about uh, the city centre not feeling like it's a place that's designed for people to live, or at least people who who aren't going to go down to the Docklands to to new high High end apartment mm. buildings. I think that you're you're onto something there, um, John. You, um, as Joan has given us a hint, you disagree uh, with um, Joan's proposal for a short term approach to well, what to do. Well, well, I think first of all, it really is feels like a crisis, and I suppose my view is that there's two approaches to this. One, there has to be some form of zero tolerance in the city with regard to this behaviour. Okay, and I think in parallel with that, as Joan has said, there needs to be the 
the longer term understanding what are the programs with regard mm. to people on the periphery. De- dealing drugs, with social disadvantage yeah, and, and drug issues. Now, and I have to say that, yeah. that, you know, and I think as Jonah said, when the guards are present and they do the work, they do it brilliantly. And it's quite clear that the lack of visibility on the streets is a major issue. And I think there's 100,000 people or 80,000 people down Mullingar for the week and it went off seamlessly. Okay, mm. So we know we can do it. But again, it's this kind of frightening sense that that it just feels like it's out of control. I mean, I believe that American that had been uh, attacked recently, he's lost an eye, okay, and he's attacked by a bunch of 14-year-olds. So there's something fairly fundamental. I have to say that I I did get a tightness in my chest when Jones suggested we start arming the guards because I think we've successfully got to a point where we don't have a gun culture in that context, Mm. and I think it's a problem. Well, but can, can we afford to be sentimental about it, though? I think I a lot of us are overlooking yeah, about that I, I because don't it's think, just I, not what we've I don't done. Think, I don't think it's sentimental. I think it escalates the whole thing about gun ownership. And then if the guards are going to have guns, then should I have a gun at home to protect myself and my family? And we end up with having all sorts of all sorts of cycles of, 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 of I think, kind of violence. But, but I, I did suggest that if it's a crisis and if it's a case we need to do something, I don't know what role the army could potentially play in the streets. And that might, that, that might frighten or scare people. Mm. But right now, the city is on the brink, it feels like, of going to a place that's going to mean that when you've got the American embassy putting notices up on their website saying if you're traveling to Dublin, you've got to be extra specially careful with regard to looking after yourself. And that's a kind of maybe a normal thing that you'd expect them to do. Yeah. But the bottom line is it feels like there's something really, really dangerous happening here. They opened up the police station at the Garda station on O'Connell Street, which seemed to be a big deal with regard to having kind of presence on the street. Mm. I'm not too sure ultimately what it's meant with regard to physical guards on the street. But this has to be taken. Really so what, what's the short term solution then? The guards need to be redeployed in some way to be on the street, to give visibility. We know Temple Bar is a, is, is, is a problem. Mm. We know where the problems arise in the city. It just seems logical that, the, that, that on those late night places where there's a lot of people around, there needs to be guards on the street. Now, where they come from, I know there's a shortage of guards, but again, there has to be a redeployment whether it's overtime, whether it's kicking people from the country back up, the city is heading for a crisis. And I think that the logical thing from my point of view is that there needs to be more guards on the street minding people, not armed. Uh, I've just pulled up the, the US um, travel advice to because I've seen this kind of cited a couple of times and I just wanted to, to exactly read the, the wording for it myself firsthand. Travellers should safeguard valuables such as credit cards or passports and refrain from carrying large amounts of cash. The US Embassy Dublin encourages all citizens to be aware of their surroundings, especially when travelling in unfamiliar places, crowded locations, empty streets or at night. Like, is that, that, that sort of seems like it's the advice that you'd give to anyone in any circumstances. <laughs> it, it, that some, benign, the, this yeah. is being portrayed as if it's some sort of, like it's, they're, they're portraying it as some sort of Mad Max hellhole when it's, it's really not. practical advice that you would get. Um, and I think it's almost to protect uh, wide-eyed, innocent tourists from thinking, oh, we're going to Ireland and it's also rolling hills. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's in, it's in another era, another time. Mm. We're a modern city, we're a vibrant city, and we mm. have the same crime problems as they do in other cities. Now, friends of mine have just come back from a trip to the US and they were in San Francisco and they were staying in a lovely hotel city centre and they were told reception go out, this is where to go, visit. Do not under any circumstances turn right. Do not under any, because if you turn mm. out, you in the wrong area really, really quickly. We don't have as much of that. In, we have we have certain pockets of the city which are more exposed for sure than others. Mm. To John's point about bringing in the army, however, I think the issue is well, like, whether I, it's I, a green I, I, uniform or a navy uniform. I don't know if he said the army on air. He might have said, no. said that to you when oh, you were in, the, in the, the green but, room. But more that idea of extra numbers. Maybe you're right. It's, it's that dis, it's about 
a deployment maybe from another service mm. if we don't have enough guards. Mm. But I don't think the answer is taking guards from rural towns and bringing them to Dublin either because well, we just create other problems. A, a question that's raised by David uh, on the WhatsApp line 87 106 uh, What difference will arming guardi make? Are they going to start shooting people for antisocial behaviour? Like, how much of a deterrent would arming the guards be? Well, I can't imagine it's, it's more, it's less of a deterrent than what they've got at the moment, which is not enough people but, and but no if, arms But if teenagers feel comfortable and don't feel like there is enough of a sanction for them uh, you know, beating up a tourist to the point where he might lose an eye. Well, I think it's like, almost a, like... A guard having a gun when the guard isn't there to begin with. Well, I certainly would have respect. Well, not that I don't have respect for the guards, but if I was if I was up to mischief, for want of a better word, somehow the idea of the the stakes are higher um, when, when the police are armed and I think that is part of it but I don't think it's all of the problem either I think John's right we do need more bodies but it's what is the immediate what is the uh, what can we do immediately I think Mm. there's another issue around sanctions and particularly when you're talking about as John said 14 year olds there's no sanction they really can't do very much with them they can't be prosecuted they don't have a record you don't want someone having a permanent record for something they did when they were 14 but there has to be some repercussion beyond Mm. Well, actually, here, here's a couple of interesting texts. Uh, one person says that you're going to see hundreds of guards directing traffic uh, in a couple of weeks at the ploughing championships uh, in Rathanisk and County, Leagues, uh, and County Leash. And they say that guards should not be directing traffic, which there's certainly a case we made for that. You're calling up reservists or, or, or doing sure. something else rather than having um, a finite number of guards that we've already got and then sending some of them to, to traffic management. Um, somebody else says, the problem in Ireland is that there is no respect for guardy. Try to say the F word to a police officer in, let's say, Lithuania, and you'll be arrested and heavily penalised. In Ireland, it's okay to say that. And that's, well, I don't know if it's okay to say it. So much, <laughs> no. so, so much as the guard won't beat the bajases out of you for doing it. Um, you need heavy fines for insulting the honour and dignity of the guards, and that would change a lot. Otherwise, you won't get enough people wanting to work in the force. Is there maybe a point there, John, about the, the general um, authority that guards carry in society? That because we... I don't, I'm not going to say it's, that it's because they're unarmed, but that maybe we just don't hold them in the same reverence as well, they do in others. Well, I think there's been a whole erosion and a deterioration in respect for authority in the general sense. OK, and I won't go back as far as the church or anybody else or the mm. local priest or the local the, the local doctor and the, the whatever local solicitor. But absolutely, it feels like there's a softening with regard to society in the context of structure and respect and how people engage with other people. And I think that, you know, it's a really interesting conversation to kind of understand, you know, what sort of a society do we want? And I certainly, for me, I certainly don't want the guards armed. Special branch can have their guns and look after people when they have to do it, OK? Mm. Because all I can tell you is that you look at the States and such a dysfunctional place in the concept of gun culture. Um, and I, think but I, I know, Is that a fair example to pick out either, though? Because there's plenty of other cultures that have armed police forces and they don't have the same saturation of guns. And I don't exactly. know if the gun culture problem is there linked um, to the fact that police forces... Yeah, but, weapons. But, but I think, again, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's very much a last resort. But it goes back to that point again, I mean, what is the sanction, OK? Uh, certainly, you know, when you think about it, I can remember during COVID and I set my wife right driving along the canal and we've been, we'd gone a half a kilometre outside our, our, and she's petrified of the guard stopping to ask us, where are you going? Mm. Okay, so there is a... What were you doing outside of your 2K or your 5K? Oh, anyway? listen, please, please, Gavin. Got it. We were but visiting, you just we, volunteered for the we National Radio, John. We, 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 we were visiting a friend. Right. Um, but, okay. but, but I think that, back to your point, there is an issue of both respect. <laughs> but the bottom line is that if they're present and they're trained and they know what their role is, it absolutely plays a role in creating some sort of balance in society. And at the moment, it's been said for the last four or five years, the presence on the street doesn't exist and mm. people feel it's easier to not 
behave. Yeah, uh, this is something that we will pick up. We're going to be talking to the, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Dahi Roshta. He's going to be with us in the second hour of the programme. We will pick up the conversation then. Uh, somebody else says, I don't agree with arming uniformed Gardaí. Instead, train them properly in relation to how to patrol their beat. And in Dublin city centre, says this person, there should be a minimum height for uniformed Gardaí. Uh, they got rid of the minimum height um, in, in the year 2001. I've just pulled it up here uh, while I've been reading that message. Um, someone else wants it back. Uh, final text for now, which is just coming from Fiona. Thank you, Fiona. The city is like the Wild West, uh, says Fiona. I was at the Gate Theatre on Wednesday for a play, had to walk to Connolly Station for a train home. The walk down Talbot Street was really very uncomfortable. Young men standing in groups, another group having a fight. No Gardaí in the area. There was a ghetto-like no-go feeling, which is unbelievable. Then last night in a suburb of Dublin, a group of youths kicked a can of beer at people walking on the street at the station. This is two ends of the spectrum in our city, but fundamentally it comes back to the same issue. No parental control, young adults, teenagers with no respect for themselves, let alone others, and a lack of repercussions of those that are caught. Thank you, Fiona. Uh, keep your text coming, 87 106 uh, One thing which we did have on the, the list of topics um, before both John and Joan um, wanted to, to raise the situation in the capital city, and we won't go too deep into it because God knows how many weeks we are at this point, um, is RTE. And there's lots of coverage about the fact that Paddy Keelty's debut is coming up on September the 15th, the other thing that you can set your diary for. Um, was that a comedy yawn that I just heard from you, John, about no. RTE coverage? <laughs> no, and I have to say that it does feel like it's going on forever. Yeah. And I suppose if you look at the papers today, and I've just got a view at the moment is, where's the Grant Thornton report? Where's the forensic accountant's report? Yeah. Kevin Backhurst, we, the, the man has been in 30 days, mm. all right? And we'll assume he's doing a lot of things internally. So I'd say, cool your jets, wait for the data to come out and let the decisions be made then. But I think increasingly as time has gone by, the whole Ryan Tuberty thing is 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 really kind of interesting. The fact that it's still ongoing, but today it sounds like yeah. they're negotiating his return because I certainly heard it was fifty fifty <clears throat> whether that was going to happen or not. Mm. But the big issue has to be the absolute collapse in the collection of the license. Well, fee. Th- this is the reason why I think it actually warrants a, a little bit of a chat because uh, we might think, or our general members of the public might think, that this whole sort of crisis has abated or that the circus has moved on. But if RTE is losing out on license fee revenue to the tune of about a million euro a week, it is an immediately pressing thing. And and that's why it's on ministers' minds, because there's a budget coming up and they need to know what sort of situation RTE is going to be in. And again, it just struck me. So I got my TV license the other day and I paid it immediately just to make that statement. All right. And what's really frightening at the moment is that this whole question about the public, uh, public service broadcasting and the role of RTE. The bottom line is that RTE fundamentally does a very good job, as far as I'm concerned, in many, many areas. All right. And you're paying the 160 euro, which I'm very happy to pay. When you think that people are paying 1500 quid a year for Sky and other such mm. services, OK, the 160 quid to get what we get. Other, yeah. other prime premium cable TV services. Other, other, are, yes, uh, all of them. But mm. again, to me, this is very good. Yeah, but to me, this is very good. But to me, this is the issue ultimately regard to how how is RTE funded? And they've had all sorts of commissions looking at it and everything else, okay? Mm. It just feels that ultimately, if you want to have a public service broadcasting uh, organisation in Ireland, it needs to be looked at in a, proper, in, a, in a proper funding form. The commercial element of this has confused the whole thing and it's created this all of this dynamic that's been raised now. So I just think that we need to have an independent public service broadcaster and RTE is the best we've got at the moment, so make it work. But Kevin Backhurst is in 30 days. I want to see the Grant Thornton report, the Friendly mm. Account report, and let's see what are the problems and can they be fixed. Can I just add to that? 
I think one of the things that keeps coming up is how it is funded. Yeah. Uh, I think funding it is not the problem as much also as the cost base that we're talking about. It's almost like, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? It's this existential question of what are you paying for? How many services, how many things are put on by RTE that we don't actually need? So there was the question brought up recently of why are they buying the rights to shows that are on other free-to-air channels anyway mm. that you get, if, even if you were on Servio. Yeah. There's Paul also... Your point, which is actually raised by the managing yeah. director of my TV station. But, right. Uh, so that was, I thought that was a really fair point. So what are we actually paying for? So there's some fantastic programmes that might not be otherwise financially viable and that need to be done... Um, as part of public service broadcasting. But the other issue is, and I do also pay my television licence. I don't even get the bill through the post. I just pay it on direct debit. It just arrives every October. But I think there is the the difference is whatever you're paying for Sky or you're paying for Netflix or Prime or whatever streaming service mm. you're doing, that is your choice. The issue with public service broadcasting and actually your television licence is you do not have a choice. So it is essentially a tax. Mm. And if people but decide not to pay their television licence, which some people, and I think it's a ridiculous thing. I mean, I can understand the wanting to do it in some kind of protest, but it's pointless and fruitless because the service will be funded one way or the other by the taxpayer mm. one way or the other. So if you're not paying it on a TV licence, you can be absolutely sure you're going to be paying it through some other tax so inevitably. The, the basically, we just need to grab the bull by the horns and just rename what it already is because effectively it's going to be funded through the state one way or another. It's going to be so funded through the state one way or the other. But let's stop. Make sure that what is being paid for, we're getting good value for money for that. And I think this is what this whole thing has thrown up, a full reassessment of what is RT with multiple channels. And then we go back to crime. And I actually think a lot of, I mean, there's some great TV has been produced by RT, but we have glorified crime in an awful lot of the RT <laughs> produced TV shows that have been huge hits in the last couple of years. They have all been rooted in crime. And maybe we should think about how we've glorified it. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think that the bottom line is this question has up been resolved yet with regard to public service broadcasting versus a commercial station. And I think this is ultimately going to lead to this constant, constant challenge with regard to what is required to make it work. If we need it to happen, we want it to be independent, fund it properly and get it done. Uh, pay for what, says Joe. Uh, RTE is full of repeats, just like last night. Pay-per-view is the only way to go. Let the people decide. Simple as, uh, says Joe. Here's Joe, tell us what you really feel. Um, 87 106 One person, by the way, there's lots of texts and tweets coming in about the situation in the capital city. And as I said, we will talk about that um, with the, the Lord Mayor, Dahidi Roshta, uh, after 12 o'clock. Um, one person simply says, there's a teenage crime epidemic and you're talking about arming the guards. Time to change station, methinks. Uh, well, please Ooh, don't change station. That listener, that's my but, fault. <laughs> well, there you go. If, if, if the jail laws are bad, I know who I'm going to blame. Uh, all John Mulvihill's fault. Uh, ah. lots, lots more texts and tweets coming in about that. We will get back to that uh, when we're going through more of what's in the papers with John and Joan when we're back after this. Still joined in the studio by John Cunningham and John Mulvihill to talk about some of the stories uh, making the Sunday papers today. Uh, John, you're particularly exercised about uh, a piece on page five of the Sunday Independent um, about uh, a case that was taken to the Workplace Relations Commission which has resulted in the ruling that Aer Lingus can no longer make its cabin crew wear heels. And and you seem really bizarrely exercised by this. And I wanted to let you opine on the National Airwaves as to why you think this is such a big deal. Well, first of all, it sounded like an article from 1976. And I think worse than the high heels was the, 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 the compulsory wearing of pop socks, which I thought were a thing of the past, all right. But in reading like the article, in reading, in reading the article, it really was quite appalling to think that an organisation had a, a a document outlining mm. 
how the people should present themselves and specifically things like you're allowed to wear flat shoes on the plane, but when you're out of the plane and on the ground, yeah. you had to wear heels between two and a half and three inches. All right. And you had no other choice but to do that. So Sorry, re- you're not required to wear them when you're actually sort of doing the job. So when you're speak, on the plane, when you're, you can when wear your flats. When you're walking as through long the, as terminal, the right colour. When you're out, like, oh, there's the yeah, cabin. So when there. you're on the ground, you have to wear heels. And that is in the terms and conditions of their employment. Mm. So, And John, you should specify that the wearing of heels is only for women. The men don't have to wear the heels. Only the women have to wear the heels. PC only the women. Mad. So, 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 so I have to Rangers. say, I think the, the courts made the right decision. And it's really kind of really interesting to think that in a cultural sense, for what was, I think, or is a kind of quite a progressive organisation in many respects, that this was still, you know, I mean, I think one of the comments mm. that was being, being, being made, Gavin, was that, you know, it was actually promoting and kind of reaffirming this whole trolley dolly concept, which is, of course, one mm. very disrespectful in its, in its own, its own right, because cabin crew do an extraordinary job in getting us to and from places. But it is frightening to think in 2023 that this was still an issue. I think the courts made the right decision and I think it's a warning to anybody else out there who has these antiquated, unequal in, in, rules mm. and conditions to get rid of them. So this this was taken by a long-standing Aer Lingus uh, employee, Elizabeth Barry, who brought a case to the Labour Court. Um, her uh, solicitor, Leonora Frawley, argued that the female uniform is less practical and comfortable than the male equivalent and it portrays an outdated image of women. Uh, female cabin crew, as you mentioned, John, are issued flat shoes to wear on board the company's fleet of aircraft, <laughs> but they must wear heels of two or three inches when they're working on the ground and wearing uniform, the same rules obviously do not apply to male cabin crew. Miss Barry said she did not know the purpose of having to wear higher heel shoes when you leave the aircraft. And under cross-examination by Miss Rawley, an Aer Lingus operations manager was unable to say <laughs> why female staff were required to change into heels when not on the aircraft. Which sort of begs the question, Joan, as to what, like, where did the, the policy come from if, when they were even asked by a court, what's the point of this? If Aer Lingus didn't even have the excuse of Oh, sure, it's, it's what you do. It's tradition in the industry or whatever. If they literally had no explanation whatsoever as to why it's required, kind of really boggles the mind as to how we've managed to get this far without them still being mandatory. Well, it's funny. It actually came up in one of the professional services firms, didn't it? About five, four or five years ago, uh, there was a lady working at reception in one, I think it was an accountancy firm of note, um, about being required to wear high heels. And it was it's almost become this accepted norm. I worked for a professional services firm myself many years ago where I was, we were all in suits and it almost became an unspoken uniform. No one mm. told us to wear heels, but it, it was a thing. And I think it's something that I, I worked in tech then for 10 years, yeah. if we all know, and uh, there's yeah. no uniform there. And everything became much more egalitarian in terms of the pseudo uniform um, and I think now that's just become even with working from home and hybrid there's just less of an expectation of that kind of uniform I, I don't disagree with having a uniform for certain roles but I do think a specification for heels with absolutely no purpose or point arguably I stand on my toes an awful lot more on the plane when I'm putting my bags into the overhead locker ah, yeah. could, do, could do with a few extra inches but actually standing flat on the ground walking along the runway no I think not um, one thing which is is very striking with this is that th- there's a piece at the bottom of this article on page five of the Sindo um, refers to an Aer Lingus uniform regulations manual from the 1980s, uh, which appears to be um, the, the source from which this yep. has been drawn over decades. Um, it outlines in detail a dress code that has long been part of a strict sartorial culture. The minimum allowable heel height is five centimetres, uh, it says, allowing that wedge heels and ornamentation of any kind were not permissible. Like and that it has, has to be a stiletto style. But you had to also wear flesh-coloured tights mm-hmm. in yes. the summertime 
or pop socks. I mean, this really mm. was going to. It's, it's going it, to. It was unsafe uh, for the for women to wear. Um, Nylon pop socks which women must wear with a trouser uniform were slippy and not safe. Male colleagues, meanwhile, could wear cotton socks, uh, which they, they were allowed to wear, but the female equivalent weren't. Oh, it's the titillation of that little flash of ankle, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but also, wow. again, I think that Joan, <laughs> touched from the 1940s, <laughs> yeah, Joan touched on it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the concept of a uniform in a professional sense of presenting yeah. yourself, all right? And I think Louise Kennedy designed the last one, did a phenomenal yes. job yeah. of designing it. It's a fair play to Louise, all right? But it is to think that there's somebody in a modern organisation is even referring to a document from the 1980s with regard to this mm. and think it's actually okay. So that to me is just something that needs it's, to be dealt with. It's all a touch mad men, isn't it? No, listen, it's mad men <laughs> and, and mad women. But I mean, the, 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 the point ultimately here is no problem with uniforms. There has to be logic, there has to be consistency and there has to be equality, all right? Mm. And I think that these rules and the judges ruled it now. So I think this is a non-story now. Yeah. The judges ruled, the change has been made. It's time to move on. And other organisations that have such antiquated views mm. need to sort it out before they're brought to court. One thing I will say before we move off this is that I have been uh, a little surprised for, for such a long time that the the general standard of what cabin crew wear, this idea of it sort of being uniformed and suited and hard shoulders and it being blazers and like dress suits or, or female adaptation of a dress suit. I'm just kind of like, particularly in the, the low fares era of Ryanair trying to sort of make things as cheap and cheerful as possible. I actually thought it was a little bit of a an anachronism that Ryanair would still make cabin crew wear like the former hard collared shirts when actually just wearing like a, a branded polo shirt would have been much more within their ethos that it would be a that like wh- why have the perceived glamour well, because of having cabin crew wearing person, like hard shouldered uniform I don't think it's glamour but remember what Michael O'Leary has done has created one of the most powerful brands in the world and these things are thought through in the most extraordinary way with regard to the yellow bits and pieces and the, yeah. the, the advertising internally and I think that ultimately and I think certainly in the last few years they've really ad- advanced their customer service mm-hmm. concept and I think that that, that that uniform becomes a very important part of that engagement. Uh, on the general topic of um, female sartorial issues, um, there, there's a very interesting piece on page 12 of the Mail on Sunday today. Today, of course, being uh, the day of the All-Ireland Ladies Football Finals taking place um, in Croke Park. It, it is still called Ladies Football. I know people find that to be an anachronism as well, but the, the association is the LGFA, so, so be it. Um, but a very uh, useful reminder of how much um, women's sport has come on, Joan, because the piece on the Mail on Sunday reminds us um, that once upon a time, uh, people who are taking part in All-Ireland Ladies Football Finals say they'd be lucky if they had a pair of matching socks of their own. Well, matching socks was one issue. I was more staggered that they didn't even have access to a football. They were actually playing with... There's, there was a bit in that story where she said the O'Neill's footballs that they use in the final are heavier than the balls that they would have had for practice, which were plastic balls. And they even had to practice before they got to oh, finals. My. It just seemed absolutely ludicrous. And in other situations, they were playing in some of the men's county jerseys because they didn't have their own. Yeah. So, I mean... To see the elevation of women's football now compared to where we were at before, the numbers that show up for matches. And I think when we talk earlier on about, you know, underlying social issues, the number of young women playing sport is has improved dramatically and Gaelic football has done a lot to support that. Mm. Um, so I do think we have come an awfully long way and I, yeah. I think we, John, you were a big fan of the Women's wor- Football the World, World, World Cup yeah. over yeah. the last couple yeah, no, of weeks I, as well. I, 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 so. just, I, I think it's one of those stories that just should be there to remind us that huge progress has been made Yeah, and I wouldn't be the greatest football support but I watched the Women's World Cup and it was actually mm. a brilliant tournament and yeah. I really enjoyed the football. A right? penalty shootout between Australia and oh, France listen, yesterday it was, was, it was, it was, it was extraordinary. Biggest viewer number since the Cathy Freeman 100 metre sprint apparently. In Australia really? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so I think that it's another indication that we've made huge progress but it is frightening to think that organisations like the GAA mm. like the IRFU and like the FAI for, for many many years 
deliberately did not invest in women's sports and now they can't get away with it. So I think it's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, um, this is a, the, the piece in the Mail on Sunday, by the way, it's a really nice uh, interview with Kathleen mm. Curran, uh, who is the the captain of the Kerry team that won the uh, 1989 uh, Ladies All-Ireland. Uh, one thing they're doing today to mark the 50th uh, occurrence of the, the All-Ireland Ladies Football is that they're having all of the captains of previous teams or as many as are surviving are, are going to be presented to the crowd today at Croke Park. And they're expecting the crowd today to come close to, if not to surpass... Um, the record from 2019 when 56,000 people uh, showed up to the All-Ireland Ladies Football Final on that day. If anyone is on the road, uh, I hope you all uh, have a very safe journey and hope that you all uh, really enjoy the game. Actually, really remarkable that it's the 50th Ladies All-Ireland Final and Dublin and Kerry have never met in one before. <laughs> when you think of how dominant they were, they were in the men's yeah. codes and that they've both been dominant in their own way in ladies football, but that they've just never met uh, in a decider. Uh, really remarkable. Going back to the aviation theme, John, uh, you were particularly uh, exercised, not alone at the dress code of, of Aer Lingus employees, uh, but there's an acronym in page four of the Business Post um, about the noise limits at Dublin Airport and some of the ongoing dispute that there is now. Uh, and there was a particular a regulator or an authority that you, you just thought was a particularly curious one? Well, it wasn't, wasn't. It was curious. The fact that we had one, I just thought maybe we were much more advanced and sophisticated than I thought. So in reading the article about the, the noise quota, which sounds like it's going to be an extremely complex and difficult and yeah. challenging thing to resolve. Mm. And there's going to be people who are going to chain themselves to railings, do everything else to stop the flights coming in. But the fact that we have ANCA, the Aircraft Noise Competent Authority, all right? Yeah. Now you talk about people I mean, getting that's, paid. That, that's, it's the council though, isn't it? It is. the But there's, a, there's an authority with yeah. people who have responsibility to do what I'm not too sure. But clearly there's enough people out in the airport mm. and in the councils that understand what the issues are. And they understand how they can. I mean, it gets a very technical, t- technical article with regard to yeah. the, that, that over the years there's been a 50 percent reduction in the noise of new aircraft that have come on board and private jets are a problem because they're very loud. And this is an issue that I have to say that, you know, I just wish everybody involved the best of luck because it sounds like it's unresolvable in the context of. Yeah. And, and really what they're trying to do is to squash more flights into the middle of the day, which means that there'll be more noise in the middle of the day than a bit at night. So it's going to be hard to see what's going to happen because, again, we need a, an absolutely mm. efficient, functioning Dublin airport to keep the country yeah. moving. So what, what they're proposing, sorry, John, what they're proposing is a, a, a noise quota system which they hope could replace the, the nighttime cap on flights. So basically result in maybe you being allowed to have more flights than currently exist, but that they'd be they'd front loaded into daytime hours right. that you wouldn't be. Yeah, so basically residence. you're talking about you'll have a higher volume of noise, but over a short, over a smaller yeah. period of time. And mm. um, so actually your noise will be worse, mm. but not at night. Not a problem that you'll have out the other end of the N4 in Mullingar. In Mullingar is not a problem we <laughs> no. have to deal with. The um, joys. Near, John, near to knock. You, yeah. you mentioned your, your, your past uh, work in the tech sector. People may remember you as being the, the CEO of the Internet Association of Ireland. So I was particularly keen to get your thoughts on a piece in today's Sunday Times. And I, I thought, I mean, I genuinely thought this was a spoof. I thought it was like a Waterford Whispers <laughs> sort of thing. That there are now online retailers who, when you place an order with them, are asking for a tip. Yeah, no. Pay what? Your, pay your own staff. That was my quick answer to that. It seems ridiculous, to be honest with you. The only place I ever encountered it is with places like I donate, you know, mm. so charity mm. ones where you can make a donation to some of those platforms yeah. in addition to your donation to the charity. Yeah. I'm kind of cool with that. But in terms of a product or a service that I am buying online, why would I give you a tip if I've not received anything yet? And so there's almost like a veiled coercion in it. For me, it's like, well, if I don't leave a tip now, 
Will it ever actually arrive <laughs> or will a bit be missing? I don't well, know. Well, might I yeah. get the crappy box or the good <laughs> box? I don't know. So, you know, what do I... So I think... Yeah. No, I think, no, this is not a good plan. We should not be doing there, this. There's, there's a piece today elsewhere in the papers, I think, about is, is it in Saint-Tropez or somewhere upmarket where they're now taking notes of the diners that don't leave good tips and passing the notes between themselves that if you show up looking for a table, that they'll find some excuse to keep you away because they know they're not going to get nice gratuity out of you at the end. Uh, I'm not going to name the companies. Uh, some of them are named in this piece in the Sunday Times and I won't won't draw more ire to them by, by naming them out loud. But that there's... Um, companies which are now requesting customers tip between 5 and 15% yeah. when they purchase products through the online store. Like, I kind of thought that like tipping was, if it's going to be tenable at all, there's, there's arguments as to whether it really should be a culture, but that it's, it's in the service industry because of the hospitality experience that you get. The mere act of yeah. going to a website and emptying a virtual cart, John, yeah. I find it very difficult okay. to think well, that that well, warrants a, a gratuity payment. Well, as you said it and you say it out loud, it is such... A load of nonsense. And it really goes back to this point again about who's paying for what. Mm. And I think myself and John had this conversation earlier and I said, just pay your staff and get on with it, all right? <laughs> I think people are, and Irish people are getting better at, you pay, you, you, you tip somebody, you tip something on the basis of the experience being good, exceptional or fantastic, yeah. all right? And you're very happy to give your tip. But it's on the basis of receiving something, as Joan has said. So this to me now is something that it's one to watch. Because then you're going to find that some way then that you'll find some way that if you don't click the button, they'll add the tip on before you yeah. know you've paid for it. And then all of a sudden it just completely changes the whole pricing structure and the strategy. So I think this is definitely one to watch. Now, I suppose you could, I'm thinking out loud now, maybe you can make a case that if it's a, one of the companies that's named here is a skincare company. And maybe their thinking is that if you were to go in and have a service rendered in person anyway, if you went in for an appointment and they rendered services to you, that you'd end up giving a tip on the day and that they don't want the staff to lose out by some of that business moving online if you're only buying products without going in and getting the in-store experience. I think and you're trying too hard, Gavin. Well, maybe I am. Uh, yeah. One person says, an expert who was quoted in this piece, says that online tipping removes the ability to reward great service. When the customer has made the decision <laughs> prior to receiving the service, uh, the default would be to round down to the 10% norm. When the customer pays for the tipping element later, it offers the opportunity to reward good behaviour and good service. I would hate to see reduction and removal of that reward system. And I think that service standards would slip if it becomes pre-rewarded for being proved. I think for me, rewarding for online purchases is repeat purchases. I will reward a business with more of my business if I've had a really positive well, online shopping experience. Yeah. That is the best reward. That is the best tip to keeping, sustaining businesses, allowing them to expand, grow, hire more, whatever. But it's, as I say, it's mm. a service that I, even even in the States where there is a large tipping culture, you don't tip when you go in the gap, you know, it, yeah. it's it's a service industry. It's a bar and a restaurant thing because that's the means by which most of those people actually get paid at all. Yeah. But it's not for buying a product. Uh, which is bizarre. And you, you might be onto something actually that you might make yourself less competitive if there's another retailer that isn't putting in a, an online sure. tip. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. um, Jennifer from Galway says, in relation to the Aer Lingus Heels case, I overheard a teenage girl at a bus stop recently saying that she was sent home from her transition year work experience in a pharmacy because she didn't wear makeup that day. There's a thought. That's, you know what, let's go straight into it actually, because we were just talking about what we were going to discuss in this part uh, in our in our view with John Cunningham and Joan Mulvihill. And one of the items that we picked out was the proposal, which has been critiqued by Alistair Hanlon on page 22 of the Sunday Independent, uh, about the idea of abolishing by-elections. And Dara O'Brien has asked the Electoral Commission 
to consider the prospect of abolishing by-elections for vacant seats in the Dáil, replicating what happens in the European Parliament where at the time of election the person uh, provides a list of possible replacements and if the seat falls vacant at any point during the term you could then just simply summon that replacement without the need to have uh, a full ballot to decide who gets the seat. And and Joan, you were were, uh, opining there mid-opening as to what you think should be the, the done solution or what you think about that. Well, I actually didn't think it was a bad idea, actually. They're a huge distraction a lot of the time. And I don't want to get rid of the democracy part of it, but a B-list works for European election. But I do think my caveat would be it would depend on the circumstance by which the vacancy had arisen. So, for example, say there was the unexpected demise of an elected Mm. candidate and they were not a minister, for example, they didn't hold a ministerial position. I think a B-list would be a perfectly efficient means of replacing one party person for another. Mm. I think in the circumstance of somebody being removed from office for some... Or resigning in some disgrace. Or resigning in some disgrace or controversy, then the possibility of going back to the polls might be a reasonable one. But if they were to do a full evaluation and actually consider consider what that might be. I don't think uh, by-elections can be very noisy. They're effectively also a kind of a halfway through the term, a half-assed opinion poll sometimes. Um, they, well, they can be a little bit of a, where is the it's mood a, a, going? A useful democratic function to, for, for an electorate in a particular area to be able yeah. to tell the government or cast a referendum on how well they think the government is yeah. doing. Yeah, but that's a very... That's that's, that's most John, by-elections. John, this is shocking. This but is they, shocking. Stop shocking to think that in a world where democracy is currently under huge but threat, that we would prevent people from participating in the greatest right we have in the democracy is to, is to vote. And I think that the closer that the politicians could be to the people is a great thing. Now, the only bit of comfort I have... We've had one by-election in the last seven years, I think. It was what? the Fanapachi. I think we've only had one vacancy yeah, yeah. in the last seven years. Exactly, which means that they're not actually integrally important to the functioning of government. But we have local elections. If Owen Murphy decides to resign from Dublin Bay South or Dublin South East or whatever it was at the time, yeah. uh, is, is that a resigning in disgrace or is that a thing where he's decided he's just not interested in politics anymore? Do, does that fall within your threshold of justifying a ballot or should he be allowed to summon a substitute. I'll be quite honest, I have not given it sufficient consideration <laughs> beyond this know, morning. I'm glad, I'm and I think that's a reasonable thing. I don't think it's yeah. something we should de- decide on, you know, in, in a whim. It's something yeah. that should be given some reasonable well, consideration. That's why my comfort is there's an electoral commission that's chaired by Art O'Leary, mm-hmm. who's a really bright yes. man who I can believe, professionally, very, yeah, very and, and you know, former Secretary General of Norris Nukthron, mm. and he's been given a huge responsibility and a huge task and a huge job. So I have every faith that Art and the team are going yeah. to come back with a strategy that's going to cover all of these things off. And again, it won't be the ad hoc reaction to the questions that are being uh, asked. We, we, but which which will uh, need referendum, by the way, to give effect to, because currently you are required to elect members correct. of, of Dáil mm-hmm. yeah, so but, but I think there's going to be a lot, an awful committee of that electoral commission that's going to require huge debate and huge conversation. With the, I mean, there's the talk now that we need other 12 or 13 TDs to represent the yeah. increase in population. Oh, well, that'll be fun and, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and that's 20. going to be... So, 20. So Tell again, going back to the fact that we're kind of pretty good at setting these things up, you know, I have every faith that Art is going to do an excellent job on behalf of the mm. country with the Electoral Commission come back with a report and we'll see what it comes up with. Um, what was I going to say on that? Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, that the... Uh, so there's only been one of them in, in seven years. Sorry, yes. The um, one argument that I've heard being put in favour of the abolition of by-elections, particularly in the case of, of somebody's demise, is that they can often result in the furthering of political dynasties because there's often a bit of a sympathy vote where in circumstances where a seat has become available somewhat unexpectedly um, that a family member of the deceased will run, they will capitalise on some sympathy and then that ends up becoming this dynastic thing. And if you wanted to get rid of political dynasties or at least dilute the power of political dynasties 
that actually not having a ballot to fill a vacancy might be one way to do it? Well, I think, one, you're absolutely right. I think historically that has been the case. And I, I know of one by-election in Wicklow where uh, a friend of mine was standing and uh, the deceased member's daughter came back from Europe. And, oh, Mildred Fox. Yeah, mm. walked in and got elected and stayed for 18 months or whatever it was and moved on, OK? And it just caused a huge upset in the whole electoral process, electoral process. But I think the point is, ultimately, back to the Electoral Commission, there needs to be all sorts of checks and balances with regard to candidates and nominations. And again, I think that, there, you know, a lot of those decisions were made locally mm. and this needs to be a national issue potentially. But look, I think that we've seen that in some cases the dynastic uh, process has, in some cases, failed us greatly and in other cases it has worked. But again, the Electoral Commission will come up with the rules, I mm. hope, that will prevent that from happening. One thing I will say about dynasties is that if they are dynasties, because people do continually elect the members of those dynasties, so you can't create a dynasty unless people have actually chosen them to, to be in the seat in the first place. Um, we actually don't have time to get to all the, the, the crime uh, texts. I will put them to the, the Lord Mayor of, of Dublin, Dahi de Rochester, when he's with us um, in the second hour of the programme. I did want to take a couple of minutes, though, to talk about the front page of the Business Post, because, yes, I know it's, it's only two months away, but actually, when I saw the story this morning today, about um, Michael McGrath issuing something of a rebuke to Leo Varadkar. I, I read it first and I thought, is that one of those things where newspapers may be amping up something more than it truly is, Joan? And then I read it and I thought, well, if Michael McGrath is asked to comment on Leo Varadkar raising the prospect of mortgage interest relief, and the Minister for Finance says, hang on now, don't raise expectations in the weeks leading up and then disappoint people. That is a public rebuke, isn't it? I think so. And I think people have been through a very difficult 18 months mm. in terms of cost of living crisis, in terms of inflation, in terms of energy costs. And I think there has one of the biggest challenges for that is people have been looking for certainty. Certainty is very, very difficult to give in, in very uncertain times. And I think managing people's expectations is really important and we should all respect the process, respect the ministers for finance um, and the process that they go through in allocating a budget, as I say, in difficult times and making sure that people have as much assurance as possible, but making promises that we can't keep and um, using mm. this these interim weeks uh, to fly kites is probably not a good idea. John, final word. Yeah, I just think that, first of all, we are very lucky to have, I think, Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunne as two really competent ministers for finance. It's political. It's moving around. What's really fascinating is that we're going to have a budget where there's money to spend. And if it's not strategic and doesn't fit together, it's going to go back to the whole party political piece. And I would say to, to Leo to stop looking inside the tent and look outside those bigger challenges from to be, to be dealing with. Mm -hmm. uh, on that note, uh, Maria uh, tweets in, by the way. Thank you, Maria. Uh, hashtag on the record NT is the hashtag on X. Uh, California tipping has gone crazy, uh, she says. It was the norm to add 20% to a food bill. Then companies started to add another 4 to 18% for health insurance for staff. Then the LA Times investigated and in both cases the staff didn't actually receive the extra charges and no extra services were rendered at all at all. Uh, thank you for that, Maria. Uh, John Cunningham, Relationship Director with Morgan McKinley and John Mulvihill, Digitalisation Lead at Siemens. Thank you both very much for joining us in studio. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.